Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. A Dead World by William James Stanton Piper. This was first published in The Whirlwind, 20th of December, 1890. Uh, the Whirlwind was a uh, Jacobite, uh, short-lived, uh, individualist newspaper magazine. Um, it, it made a big splash, and there was quite a few famous uh, contributors. Oscar Wilde was one of them. Um, uh, but William James Stanton Piper uh, almost disappeared out of history. The reason I, I, I was processing it for another uh, story in the same issue, and, uh, and then I noticed this poem was short, and it had an interesting title. A dead <laughs> world. And I thought, I wonder what that's about. And then I read it and then I said, aha, I recognize this. And then I looked at the date again and I said, very impressive. Uh, 1890 was the year H.P. Lovecraft was born. Um, H.P. Lovecraft is probably the foremost pusher of a very strange philosophy called cosmicism. Uh, cosmicism, there's a Wikipedia entry that has a definition of it. Uh, I won't go too deep into that because I'm not sure where the source for the quote comes from. But basically what it is, is the universe is huge. The universe is ancient. There is no God caring about you individually, but we are here and we are able to witness the deep time of the universe. We are able to witness the the uh, layering of rocks that show how old the planet is and all these fossils that show that we were not the first ones here. And that's scary. And it's scary because it's true. Um, cosmic indifference. The, it's not that the universe is out to get you. It's that the universe doesn't really care whether you live or die. And that perhaps is even scarier than, you know, having a malevolent force out there trying to get you. We are here alone. That's basically what cosmicism is. And it comes straight out of science. It's not a, um, it's not a product of a, uh, religious vision. It's a product of realization. When you start stacking evidence upon evidence, you, you look at Darwin. And you say, why? This guy's really laid out a case showing that evolution is a thing. If I am really to reckon with this, that's going to fundamentally upset a lot of my cherished beliefs. And then you look at the people examining the fossil record. And they see that year by year, century by century, millennia by millennia, eon after eon, rock is piled upon rock has been thrust out of the earth and moved around. And you cannot deny this truth. We must reckon with it. Then you get a telescope and you start looking out at the universe beyond what the naked eye can see. And you see it goes on to infinity. We cannot see its edge. And the more powerful the telescope we create, the farther we can see. Light moves at a certain speed 
It is not infinite. It is not instantaneous. That being said, what we are looking at is billions of, upon billions of years old. How can we reconcile ourselves, this great creature created by God, with these facts? That's basically what cosmicism is. So it does presume that there's a God. It doesn't preclude it, but it's more like uh, what God would be the guy, the prime mover, the guy who got things going. That's but what I said. It, pre it presumes there's a God. It doesn't presume it, but it doesn't preclude it. We know that the universe is ancient, but we don't know why. What did you uh, mean by say? But I, I, two things I'd point out. One, the, this notion that um, God may have started things going, but is not dealing with anything anymore. Mm -hmm. Or even God's not there. Nature is rolling along and doesn't care about us. This doesn't require Darwin. Um, no. The, the whiteness of the whale in Moby Dick suggests a similar thing. There's no malevolence in, in Moby Dick. He just, you yes. know, just does what he does. And if you annoy him, he'll just run over you. Yeah. That's, you know, that's, the, that's, that's nature. Um, and that, of course, is, you know, that's the big, very beginning of the decade in which Darwin first publishes The Origin of Species. Uh, which, so you don't need that to get this. But, but science helps. Yep. Science helps. Um, and, but, but one thing I didn't understand, um, as I understand the term Jacobite, mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know, I don't know the whirlwind, so I'm always glad when you, you turn me on to things I wouldn't otherwise have found. But what difference does the fact that this is a Jacobite, um, magazine make in its normal editorial selections and how we might read any given poem in mm -hmm. it? Just to, just to, you know, for people who aren't familiar with that term, Jacobite is a word for those who support James right. as the rightful king of England. Um, so James the first of uh, England was James the sixth of Scotland. Mm -hmm. So it's James Charles. Then that's Charles the first gets beheaded. There's the interregnum when Cromwell is in charge. And then when the re with the restoration you get Charles the second. Then James. Uh, but there are people who said no, no, no. It should be. James, who is really the king, yeah. it shouldn't be this this Stuart line, and uh, th those Jacobites, the, the, who they are James long the before this king. this period. Exactly, right? it's two hundred years before. So I'm wondering, what does it mean for a 19th century magazine to have a Jacobite edge to it, and how might that help us understand the things that are published in sure. it? Sure. So uh, these are neo Jacobites. Um, <laughs> they are. Uh, they were, they were arguing for something that was unpopular in the UK at the time, uh, which was the restoration of a different particular, uh, thing. But more importantly, they were independent as opposed to collectivist. They were individualists. So if you're thinking of like a, a chart in which you're trying to compass, politically compass people, usually on the left, they put, libertarian and on the right they put authoritarian and on the top they put something and something on on the you know it's like a way of charting political parties and individuals um the communitarian would be uh one spectrum and the jacobite would be on the other it's mm -hmm. it's not it, it's not 
particularly relevant for us, but for them, it was like, these are not pariahs, but they are not conformists. Mm. Okay. Um, sure. And I think that that is, uh, so like, it's not that you can't have a conversation with the Pope about how big the universe is. It's just you, you can't do it if you're Galileo at the time, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> because or not publicly. Not publicly. Right, ex- exactly. Because Galileo does not, in fact, get excommunicated. He no. just gets put under house arrest. That's right. Until he recants. Well, yeah. he, he doesn't really. He, he, he actually, I mean, he just no, he, promises he, he, never, yeah. never to say it again. Yes. Not that he, no, not uh, that he, yes. It, the the purpose of locking him up is to change his mind. And and he finds a way to survive briefly. <laughs> well, they lock him up in a very luxurious place, and he continues to have a public life. House arrest. He just promises yeah. never to to advance his theories again. But but he doesn't re- withdraw them, no. and they don't excommunicate him. The, the fact is that the church fathers were smart enough to realize that Galileo was right. It's just that saying it really undercut their theology, and that's so they right. didn't want him opening his mouth. That's right, and, and that's why putting a, a poem like this in a, a more uh, independent um, position, uh, one of the things they said uh, about the whirlwind was that um, they had many ideas. That was one of the criticisms. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> Full of lively uh, and numerous ideas, right? Um, well, so I think that the, this, this it feels like fairly obvious to today. Us, I mean, most people understand that the universe is big. <laughs> they understand <laughs> that the Earth is old. They understand a lot of the stuff. But at the time, this is going against the conventional view. Even if even if they are grudgingly acknowledging a lot of it, putting it all together is painful. I think normally I like to 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 read a, a work, or if we're going to read it uh, to each other, as here, uh, do it before we get too deep into the discussion. But I think you've raised a really important point that is is hard for people who are born um, in the last fifty years, perhaps, to understand. When that famous picture of the great blue marble, Mm. the earth, came about, it actually caused an enormous change in people's attitudes. Mm. I mean, we we all knew the the idea of each planet running around in in black space. Um, But to actually see the planet from away, not just imagine that you could be away and see the to see it really changed people's minds, just as. The recognition that outer space is empty, which happened in the middle of the 17th century, really changed people's minds, even though they knew that, you know, there were planets up there running around, as Galileo had explained to them. Um, So I think it's important in hearing this poem to realize that the vantage point of the speaker is something that seems perfectly plausible to us. Mm. Just be hanging out in space and looking down at a planet. But it was absolutely alien to readers in 1890. Yeah. That's that's what's so remarkable. It's not that the prose here or the the poetry here is so so astoundingly amazing. It's good. Um it's that it's that it's so early and it's doing what we now appreciate as important, significant 
So why, why don't you have a read through it, and I'll make some more notes, <laughs> and then uh, we'll we'll maybe break down individual meanings. Sounds good. A Dead World by Stanton Piper. O oh, planet immemorably old, on whose quenched brow the chill of ages lies, Again I see the unwearied sun arise, and with his warm beams thy drear sides enfold. But thou heedst not around thy craters cold, no breeze now may fan life's fevered eyes, or on their bosom bear life's laughs and sighs, for death reigns there. Through the dim ether rolled, silence is thine and who regards thy fate? There is no pity in the calm heaven's face. Nay, nor shall be when dead lies yonder sun, one sparkle less of countless hosts but one. Then why repine? Know we not soon or late? All things must lie wrapped in the shroud of space. So when I first read this, I, I was not 100% clear as to what world he's talking about. I'm still not 100% clear, but my first instinct was the Earth. <laughs> um, and I think that there's some evidence for that. Uh, but actually, I think it's the moon. What do you think? I agree. Yeah. I agree. I think in 1890, this would have been the moon. The giveaway is the word craters. Yes. It, it's it's almost impossible to see craters on uh, other planets, other moons with a telescope from Earth. It's very easy to see craters on the moon with a telescope from Earth. It's and and also one one knows by this time I mean, for, since Aristotle one knows why there is a crescent shape on the moon mm. so you know this idea of the sun enfolding with its warm beams thy drear sides that that enfolding is the crescent so although the word is planet um, I think in fact it is uh, yeah. it is not a wanderer at all. Going back to the etymology of the word planet, mm -hmm. it's not a wanderer. It's it's a satellite with a quite fixed uh, path. There's uh, there's some speculation um, that, given how big Earth's moon is in proportion to its its uh, planet, um, that that might be important for creating life. The problem is is on the Earth. The problem is, is we actually don't have a lot of other examples. We only have the one solar system. And wherever we look in the solar system, we find lots of moons, uh, quite a few planets, and not a lot of other life. In fact, zero. Every time they think they've discovered life, it turns out just to be methane again. <laughs> right. Now, that being the case... Um, it makes one wonder if other aliens on other planets are looking up at their moon and making similar realizations. This inference about what's going on and who who we're talking about, what what body we're talking about in this poem, 
is all, I think fairly obvious because of just looking at the time. If, if we had been told that this poem was from, uh, 1970, we could say, oh, this could be about Mars. But it's not. It's not. It has to be about the moon or it could be the earth in some future state. But that's the kind of the point, I think. And my first pass through that that's kind of the point is that this body, perhaps once alive, now lies dead. Or it could be, which would be even more forward thinking. And by the way, this particular kind of forward thinking goes back at least to, to Spencer and the Fairy Queen. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about the, the, the Renaissance, mm-hmm. um, the end of the 16th century. Um, it could be a planet in some other system entirely. Yes. This, right. It could just be imagining a planet further away and older than ours. And the idea that there can be planets that are older than ours is something that uh, Herschel put forward when he was first observing Mars. So it's a common idea at this point. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and yet, right, if we don't have that body close by, like it almost, it almost seems that our, ra- our reason, reasoning about the universe and what other places could be like is – is bootstrapped by the fact that we have such a close, large body that is clearly dead. But, yes. but we can, you know, once you start pointing telescopes up at it, it becomes clearer that it's exactly what it appears to be a, a dead world. And then when you start looking beyond, it, it makes you look beyond because what of those other moving objects far away in the sky or other moving lights? Um, I, I forgot. To mention, I do have some more biographical material. If you if you'd like, I can throw some of that down before we read it again. Sure. All right. So, uh, I mean, after all, you're paying the piper. (laughs) William James Stanton Piper, uh, 1868 to 1941, was a journalist, writer, Russian translator, classmate of W. B. Yeats, um, uh, friend of John Eglinton. These are all um, things I picked up from various books. Uh, during World War I, he was a temporary army second lieutenant in the Labor Corps, which is not a combat unit. Uh, he was later promoted to captain. Uh, he was Irish, um, hence uh, being in an independent newspaper, um, perhaps. Uh, he had holdings in Seaside Sutton, Dublin, um, an insurance claim on a fire and a loss of a manuscript uh, got me that. And uh, he may have also translated Yeats into German. There is one other <laughs> contribution in The Whirlwind uh, from Stanton uh, called uh, Dastardly Renegades. It's a very short biography of a... Uh, Gladstonian hypocrite, (laughs) not really relevant. Um, And uh, a quite interesting essay uh, entitled The Beauties of London Fogs um, in the same issue. Um, It references Edgar Allan Poe, and uh, it's basically a rumination on, on what fog is like. And I think that that's really interesting. I feel like I would like hanging out with this guy. I have a quote here that's from the that piece. 
Um, a brooding tranquility pervades all things, and we ourselves, wrapped round with cloud and secrecy, and removed from the prying eyes of men, with our own thoughts for companions, move onwards as through endless space. I, I feel like I could get on with this guy if I if I travel back in a time machine, um, because he's thoughtful. When I go out in the fog, I feel it's cool, not just the cool on us on my skin, but it's cool as in I'm interested in this weirdness. The mm-hmm. it's 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 bright, but I can't see. I can see, but things are a bit foggy. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> And uh, I don't think that that's, I think the fogginess in this poem is allowing us to see more, if you know what I mean, rather than um, it, it, by throwing down names of, you know, craters on the moon. That would, I think, make us see less. Agreed. I think that this is meant to be an everyman poem. Mm. Uh, if, if I can tee this up a bit. Um, he talks about the planet being immemoriably old, mm. meaning there will be no memorial. Right. No one will be remembering. Right? Um, the brow has the chill of ages. The brow. Um, now, spheres don't have brows. Nope. So there's a line. The, the way this is written, I think, immemoriably old and the chill of ages is to let us see that the planet can be understood as a stand-in for the for a a person Mm. just as a house can be a stand-in for a person or for a family line so then at the end when we have this prosodically strange line uh, know we not soon or late all things must lie wrapped in the shroud of space the shroud is what happens what you what you get after mm-hmm. you've gone past the chill of ages. So this is about a person. That penultimate line, then why repine? When was the last time you heard of the moon complaining? Nope. So so there this is in one way, as you said, we can view this more deeply. We shouldn't view it as specifically the moon. And I'm suggesting in fact we might view it as an every moon mm. and an every man. And I'm offering that as a way of framing it. Perhaps you'd want to get, read it again and see if I that do. fits yeah. in. It's, it's actually, I'm, you know, I'm not the greatest poet. I like writing poetry. It's fun. Um, and I, I read my own poems. I say, you're so funny. <laughs> you're so smart. <laughs> um, but uh, even when I, I haven't, I'm not dealing with a master, which I don't think W.J. Stanton Piper is a forgotten master, but he's good. I'll read it again because I enjoy it. Oh, planet immemoriably old, on whose quenched brow the chill of ages lies. Again, I see the unwearied sun arise, and with his warm beams thy drear sides enfold, but thou heedest not. Around thy craters cold, no breezes now may fan life's fevered eyes, or on their bosom bear life's laughs and sighs. For death reigns there. Through the dim ether rolled, silence is thine, and who regards thy fate? There is no pity in the calm heaven's face. Nay, nor shall be when dead lies yonder sun, 
one sparkle less of countless hosts but one. Then why repine? Know we not, soon or late, all things must lie wrapped in the shroud of space. This is, um, this is, uh, it's true. And I see why you're, you're so interested in, in putting it in other planets and other solar systems, because it's true for everywhere. Everything has a life cycle. Stars, in fact, it turns out, come and go. Planets, you know, Mars used to have running water. <laughs> How did W.J. Stanton Piper know that? Because he was reading the science mags and seeing the articles saying that things come and go. Everything comes to an end. Why complain? Yeah. It's, uh, it, it, it's a, a poem, if I can, that, that I think makes me at least think a little further. As it, it, all poetry slows us down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the lines end before the end of the page. You know, they, the, the words take on second meanings when we connect them with what comes in the next line. The, the rhymes and other prosodic devices focus our attention. Uh, poems slow us down, and, and we're rewarded for that. This poem slows, slowed me down in a particular way that I found, despite the fact that I agree with you that this is not a master, but he's good. Mm-hmm. Um, it surprised me. This is what is known as an Italian sonnet or Petrarchan sonnet. The rhyme scheme for a Petrarchan sonnet is um, A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A. That is the first and fourth lines of the first quatrain rhyme, the second and third uh, rhyme. And these are perfect rhymes. So A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A. Those, four, those two quatrains together form a section known as an octet, and they lay out a problem. Petrarch was the most famous pro- uh, exponent of this, and most of his famous sonnets are about unrequited love. So the octet lays out the problem, oh my goodness, does she love me? Why won't she love me? And then the next six lines, known as the sestet, which is comprised of two tercets, two three-line stanzas, is a reply. It's an answer to this. It deals with it. And so A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A, and then the tercets are C, D, E, and then either D, C, E, or C, D, C, D, C, D, to make that sestet. This is a perfect octet, and then as soon as we get to the fourth line of the sestet, we realize it ain't working that way, because this one ends C, D, E, E-C-D, that is the word space, rhymes with the word face, Mm. which is the second line of the sestet. It doesn't fit. The word space does rhyme, but it doesn't fit. And the sestet isn't an answer to the proposition or the problem laid out in the octet. octet. It just sort of says, so accept it. Mm. What the hell are you complaining about? Mm -hmm. This is... This is, in a very interesting way, an anti-Petrarchan use of the Petrarchan sonnet. Unrequited love, hell, unrequited everything. Nobody gives a damn about you. (laughs) Very individualist. 
<laughs> as opposed to uh, yes. communitarian, sticking with the it traditional. Reaped, it, it reaped the whirlwind. Yep. <laughs> so as little as this was, look at how much there was in there. Absolutely. Between the two of us, apparently, always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.